Good afternoon. Praise the Lord. It's a little cooler here now. I think maybe because there's fewer people or someone opened the doors. Um, I actually came with a tie and a coat and everything like that, but it's just way too hot. <laughs> so I will follow the biblical uh, practice that uh, the priest shall not wear anything that causeth to sweat when they enter the sanctuary. That's actually in Ezekiel. So um, we're going to talk about whole person care in the ER. We're going to share some real cases, uh, actual real letters. I've gotten from patients. Obviously, the names have been changed, um, but they're actually things that have really happened. And I just want to praise the Lord, first of all, uh, who's given me the honor to take care of people in the emergency room in times of distress and uh, extremis in their life, because I believe with all my heart, uh, the best time to impact someone's life is really at the worst point of their life, because that's when they're most motivated to change. That's when they're most motivated to reach out after God. And that's what I'd like us to all do uh, before we begin here now. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great honor we have as, as healers in various capacities, Lord. And I want to praise you uh, for the previous presentations uh, because it all does come down to having unselfish love, uh, not only for our patients, but for those around us, Lord, because that will bring true and lasting healing. And Lord, I just want to be the first to confess I don't have that unselfish love. And so I ask you for it now, and I ask that you would fill me, Lord. Speak through me now as my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I met John when he was 19. Um, unfortunately, this young man was hypoxic. Uh, he was breathing about 40, 50 times a minute. The triage nurse grabs me out there and says, hey, you need to see this guy. So I throw him on some oxygen, and his O2 goes 100%, but... He's just like hunched over and breathing. And I'm like, um, well, tell me what's going on. He's like, well, I was in uh, academy, uh, well, actually high school. And when I was 15, I got osteosarcoma. And the osteosarcoma went to my lungs and actually created a malignant effusion. So I think what's happened is that the cancer has come back because I had beat it for a while. But I think the effusion's back. That's exactly what it feels like. And so I think I just need the, the lung drained out and I, I should be okay. Uh, he had actually had to drop out of school for about a couple years in order to take care of the cancer and to have it treated. He finished high school in two and a half years. Very smart guy. Uh, his parents were there with him. That's his sister. She wasn't there with him at the time. But uh, very loving, very supportive. And so I brought him back right away. And I said, John, I, you know, I think you're going to have to be intubated uh, because I don't think you're going to last very long. Is it okay if I just rest you up on the ventilator for a little while and I talked to his parents and they said sure and I said you know anytime someone is facing something life-threatening I always like to ask that God would bless would you like me to pray for you and no one ever ever says no to that it's a very easy way of introducing prayer you know all you have to do is just put something in the blank and say you know let's have prayer and just if it's normal for you it's natural for you it'll be natural for your patient you know you know Mr. Johnson uh, you have an ST segment elevation MI. I'm sending you to the cath lab. All the patients that I send to the cath lab, I always pray that, the God would, that God would guide the hands of the cardiologist. Would you like me to pray for you? I mean, who's going to say no? Amen. No one's going to say no. Um, Mrs. Mrs., uh, Mrs. Thielen, you know, you, you have acute appendicitis, and every patient I send to the operating room, I always pray that God would guide the hands of the surgeon. Would you like me to pray for you? I mean, no one says no. I, I can tell you, no one says no. I mean, I've been practicing for 10 years now, and I can count on one hand the number of people who have said no. And that's not many people. 
there's very few people that are going to say no if you approach it that way. And this family was no different. They said, you know, if you would pray for our son, that would be great. So we had prayer. Problem was there was no IV access. So I can't put him down to intubate him. So we look and look and look, and the nurses can't find anything. So I have to go central. So I notice this guy has all this edema all over his, his body. And I just, it's kind of strange. I can't really feel the landmarks. And so I decide to uh, chicken out a little bit and go femoral instead of uh, IJ or subclavian. So I go femoral. And as I'm going in there, I'm thinking, you know, this is a young guy. He's a teenager. You know, average is about a centimeter or two below the surface of the skin. And it's just not there. It's not there. I'm looking, I'm looking, and looking. And eventually I hit a pocket of yellow. I'm like, oh, no, I've hit this guy's bladder, you know. And it wasn't. It was actually just a pocket of edema, uh, just lymphatic fluid. And at that moment, I stopped. And with my tech and my nurse, I said, we need to pray again. So we had another prayer. And they're not Christian, but they're like, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're the doctor. You can have a prayer if you want. So we all had prayer there. And I put the needle down one inch, two inch, three inches, put it to six inches to the hub, and then I hit the vein. So he just had massive anasarca. Uh, put in the femoral line, uh, threaded it, and uh, ended up basically um, getting it in fine. We gave him the meds and uh, put him on the vent. Now, when I took a look, I took a chest x-ray, and he just had total effusion uh, of his left lung. Uh, but I had a lot of patients, and the ICU said, hey, we'll take him upstairs. We can do the thoracentesis. Don't worry about it. So I sent him upstairs to the ICU, and um, basically the next day, of course, I want to know how he was doing. So I came in early for my shift, and I ran up the stairs to go to the ICU. Uh, but before we return to John, we're going to talk about the ER in general. Uh, I work with residents and medical students sometimes, even in the community. Uh, we usually get third-year um, residents or fourth-year medical students, and they want to see stuff that's deadly. You know what I'm saying? They don't want to see colds. They don't want to see flus. They don't want to see sprained ankle. They want to see something like John, you know, someone who's in respiratory failure. They want to do the intubation. They want to do the central line. But uh, I can tell you there's something very deadly that I see every day in the emergency department. And this thing is so deadly that if I determine that you have the disease, I can force the treatment on you. I can make you take the treatment. And it's under observation. I can force you to take the treatment. Um, this is one of the very few places where the doctor-patient relationship does not apply. Um, I am not going to keep this secret. I am going to divulge, report, whatever you want to say. Um, now, it's interesting. In some countries, I had one patient who told me, hey, it's illegal for you to force this treatment on me. Or maybe someone has religious beliefs and says, hey, you know, this is not a part of my religion. And in some countries, they do allow you that choice, but not in the United States. It's forced treatment. You have no rights. It is the third leading cause of death in one group of individuals. Um, but it's very interesting. You'd think everyone would want to see this, but my residents and medical students, when they go to see the chart, they grab it, they look at the TV plate, and they go like this. They walk away. And they hope that the attending will pick up the chart, or maybe some of the other medical students will pick up the chart, because they notoriously avoid it. Now, can you imagine what that might be? Yes, absolutely. It's depression and suicide. You're going to see it every single day. It is the number three cause of death in people 18 to 29, which is my target audience. 
my audience of ministry, many of you know I do week of prayers and stuff like that, that is my audience. And this is one of the things that kills them. It's uh, behind unintentional injuries and homicide. And the reason for that is because a lot of these people are uninsured. Um, They also end up in the ER a lot. So you're going to see a lot of people in the ER with psychiatric problems. So if you went into ER to avoid depression, suicide, you did the wrong thing because they all come to the ER anyway because they're not insured. Uh, about 30 to 40% of people in the age group of 18 to 29 are not insured. And that means no Medicaid, no Medicare, no private insurance, no nothing, just not insured. So they're going to come to you. And it's interesting, it's mostly guys actually. 40% was male and about 30% were female. And I don't know if it's Guys are less responsible, I'm not really sure, but the bottom line is you're going to see a lot of people with this problem in the ER, if that's where you work or moonlight or whatever. Now, very interestingly enough, why don't the residents and medical students want to see these patients? What do you guys think? I mean, Jason, why do you think residents and medical students don't want to see the psych patient? There's no quick fix, absolutely. We want to intubate them. You know, we want to pop the elbow back in, put the shoulder back in, right? Yeah, high five, right? We want to fix it and get the satisfaction that we've helped someone, right? So there's no quick fix. Why else do you think people don't want to see these patients? They don't feel they have anything to offer. Exactly. What are you going to say to someone who's trying to kill themselves? You know, we'll feel better soon. You know, how's that going to help? You know, and that's the frustration. Anyone else? What? The what? Yes, exactly. The average ER wait time for a mental health evaluation is six hours. Did you know that? More than chest pain, more than abdominal pain. It is the number one time sucker in your ER. And that is the last thing you need when you have a big ER. So you look at these patients, you roll your eyes, right? And you think, oh no, another waste of a bed. I've heard people say that, right? Isn't that true? They're just gonna sit there and waste the bed for six hours. Any other reasons why people don't want to see these patients? Well, I think that's pretty good. But I think the bottom line is, is uh, you guys kind of hit um, the nail on the head, is that what difference can you really make to these patients? And what I'm going to tell you is going to absolutely blow your mind. It's going to change how you look at people in the ER. It's going to change how you look at depression, at suicidal ideation, I hope, forever. And I hope it'll, weigh, it'll change the way evenly you look at your own relationship with God. This is a letter I got from a patient. Now, I saw this young woman when she was 20. She had planned to kill herself, and she had gone to her friend and kind of mentioned it in passing. And now her friends were very concerned, and they knew that she liked to party. Uh, she liked to use a lot of drugs. And so they said, hey, there's going to be this big party here. So she showed up, and the friends had the ambulance and the police. They were waiting for him. So they had actually trapped her and forced her in. So they took her against her will into the ER. She had already overdosed at the time. She was already drunk and high. And I can tell you, I walked into the room, and it's just like, I see this young woman. And the impression that comes to my heart is, this is just God's child just being flushed down the toilet. And I was just so moved. I said to her, I said, you realize you're throwing your whole life away. You have your mom here so worried about you. You have your cousin, your sister. You know, they're hysterical. And you know, you have so much going for you. You're young. You know, you've dropped out of college. 
You know, you have so much potential, but you're throwing it away. And I said, I'd really like to pray that God can help you turn your life around. Would you like me to do that? And so she's all glazed over, so she's just like this. You know, so she really can't say no, so it's pretty convenient. And her mom's like, oh, please, can you pray for my daughter? And that's all I did. I spent five minutes praying for this young woman. But in that five minutes, you're going to see that things can turn around. So this is the letter she wrote. Now, how did she get the letter to me? She actually went online, found my name on the hospital website, then Google searched my name, found a school that I did a week of prayer at, sent this email to that school, and then the school sent it to me. And this is what it says. Please give this to Dr. Riesenberger. I don't know if you remember me. I was 20. This was actually when she was 23, I think. At the time. It was three years later. But I wanted to write to you to let you know how much you really did help me. I was brought to your hospital by an ambulance. I came in on an intentional drug and alcohol overdose. At the time, I was just trying to end my life. I want to thank you for sharing Christ with me and comforting my mother with your kind words. I truly believe God is using you and used you that night to impact my life forever. I would love to email again, you again and share the entire story with you. So, of course, I want to find this person and find out what happened. So I got back in contact with her. I found out what happened was... That prayer began a cascade of events that changed her life. Now, it didn't change right away. I put her on a 72-hour hold or 5150 if you work in California or whatever. I put her in the hospital, forced treatment, and she actually escaped from the hospital twice. (laughs) And one time they tackled her on the way to the bridge. (laughs) She was going to jump off. So it didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't just roses right away. She said, but every person I kept contacting with wanted to pray with me. And I just thought, okay, why not? And what had happened was slowly over time, you know, the Lord was actually able to change her heart. She went back to college. She quit sleeping around. She quit all the drugs. You know, she went back to school uh, to become a teacher. And um, by the time I saw her, she was back in school. And I didn't even recognize her when I saw her again. She was so messed up when I saw her like three years ago. When I contacted her again, It was like, it was a totally different person. And here was the second letter. Tim, it was wonderful to see you again. Thank you for taking the time to come and visit and also for taking us to lunch. I took her and her whole family out. Um, I would love to write my testimony and send it in. Also, thank you again for the book. I gave my steps to Christ, right? Always got to follow up. I know that God is really using you in your line of work. You really touched my life and I know that you are touching so many more. I would love it if you would keep me in your prayers and I will do the same for you. I hope you're having a good week and talk to you soon, Angela. So I asked her cousin, I'm like, tell me what happened to your cousin. And she said it was like a dark cloud was over my cousin and now there's light. And that was from five minutes with a patient. You don't have to have a long, drawn-out contact with people. Just have genuine love. For people, and I know that at that moment, the Lord was impelling me. You know, you have to pray for my child. You have to give me permission to intervene in this situation and sweep away the darkness from her life. Now, I don't know exactly everything that happened to her. I know the last I followed up, she was uh, engaged to marry a nice Christian guy, and uh, she had gotten back involved with her friends with a Christian group who said basically it was like night and day uh, with her. That's her on the far right. 
by the way. Now I'm going to go back to the ER. Let's say one of your patients slips you this note. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Now, would that cause you concern? Would that cause you to perhaps be more vigilant? Maybe get a sitter for this patient, right, to be with them? But who said this? Jesus Christ said this. Now, I'm going to change your whole paradigm about Jesus right now. And I hope it changes your paradigm on how you view other people. Jesus Christ says this. Now, when Jesus was suffering the most intense agony, did he ask you to come to him and say, brother, how's your devotional life? Or sister, have you given up the dairy? You know, and sometimes we approach people like that, right? They're having a hard time mentally, and we try to offer solutions, don't we? And they're well-meaning, but they are very very wrong. Because what did Christ need at that time? What did he ask for? Do you know? Just be with me. Do you realize that? He said, stay here with me and pray for me. You know, it's interesting. The friends of Job, although they missed the uh, actual, the whole point in the end, the first part of what they did was good. Do you realize they came to Job and what did they do? For how long? One week. Now, would you do that for your friend? If your friend was depressed, suffering, would you just sit down there and just be with them? Honey, what did you do with Job today? Well, we just sat. You what? We just sat. Where? In the ashes. What are you going to do tomorrow? We're going to sit. Where? In the ashes. What did you say? Nothing. Sometimes people don't need you to talk. They don't need you to give them advice. They need you to be with them, to communicate to them that you care, that you love them. That's what Jesus asked for. And I pray that that's what we ask for. But here's a question. Did Jesus, was he depressed? And now here's another question. Is it a sin to be depressed? Is it? Well, if Jesus had depression, obviously it wasn't a sin, right? Because Hebrews tells us that he had no sin. Right? So that's an easy answer. But let's see if he had depression. The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict drew to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil and the legions of apostasy watched intently this great crisis in the work of redemption. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be no way of escape was found for the Son of God. Have you ever felt that way? That there's no way out. Let me tell you, your patients feel that way. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of the Father's love. The angel told him he would see a multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. Christ's agony did not cease, but what? Wow. Did you know that? Isn't that powerful? His depression and his discouragement left him. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. Do you realize Jesus was depressed? I mean, that's powerful. What a comfort it would be 
to your patients, if they knew that Jesus Christ was with where one out of every 10 men are and two out of every women, 10 women are, right? I mean, this is popular. It's common stuff. Jesus knows what we go through by experience, not just kind of outside. He went through it. He was depressed. Now, how badly was he depressed? Well, let's take a look. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke twenty-two forty-four. Now, what does great drops of blood symbolize? Well, I'll tell you this. I was on my OB rotation. True story. And uh, one of the fellow residents was kind of telling me about this really complicated delivery. Where this lady, she was a prime up. She was trying to push this baby out. I mean, 12 hours, 14 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours. It was horrible. Why someone didn't do a C-section, I'm not sure. But anyway, it was going on a long time. And then the baby started having late D-cell after late D-cell after late D-cell. And the nurses came over to the mother and said, look, your baby is in trouble. You need to push like you've never pushed for it or we're going to have to open you up. And so she screams and screams and screams, and the baby pops out. And then she collapses back into the bed, just wipes her face, and then she goes, ah! Because her hand is bloody. And she goes to nurse, she says, what does this mean? And they said, it means you push real good. <laughs> it is not symbolic. Hematohydrosis is an actual real phenomenon. Did you know that? When you are under extreme stress, there are several case reports that show that you will sweat blood, either under great mental anguish. Usually, it involves fear of death. It was even described as far back as Leonardo da Vinci. He observed some people who are getting ready to be executed experience this phenomenon, where the bloody sweat is forced from the pores of Christ you know that he was suffering to the utmost for you and I. There's an unpublished study um, done by Hans Selyer, who's kind of the stress doctor. And what he does is he has twin lambs, and he splits them into two groups. He puts one in one cage, one in another cage. Now, the only difference is that one cage has the mother. The other cage, the lamb is alone. Now, whenever these cages... Uh, whenever these lambs go over to the feeding trough that's in the cage, they go to eat and they go, they zap the lamb. Now, not, it's not enough to kill them, and it's not even enough to cause any permanent harm, but it definitely scares them. So what do you think the lamb did that has the mother in the room when it got, well, it ran to the mother, right? So it runs to the mother. Now, the other lamb just runs around. And what happens was the lamb goes to another spot and never goes back to that spot at the feeding trough. So eventually, what happens is they shock them over and over and over and over again. Every time they get near the feeding trough, they shock them. Now the one with the mother eventually ignores the shocks. Did you know that? And it just continues feeding. The one without the mother, what do you think happens? Well, yeah, I, you'd think that it dies eventually, but it actually doesn't in the study. It is just totally paralyzed. It has a nervous breakdown. It just doesn't get up off the floor. It just shakes shakes and twitches and doesn't do anything. Now, the only difference in those two studies is what? The mother. And that's where this psalm comes in. Why, what do you think is the most recognized psalm in the Bible? 
Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, listen to the words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. Are some of you walking through that valley? Are some of your patients walking through that valley? Now, you don't walk around the valley of the shadow of death. Notice you go through, right? The valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. There is so much power in having the Lord with you and knowing that he's with you. And not even just the Lord, but even a friend. That's why it's important to just know that there's someone with you. And that lamb knew, right, that it had someone with it. its mother. And just that knowledge was enough to change the outcomes. But what about Jesus? How did Jesus feel? Mark 15, 29, 34, and they passed by and railed on him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, and we will see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? You know, people sometimes get this advice and say, well, you know, you shouldn't want to know why or you shouldn't ask why. Did Jesus ask why? He asked Why? Let the person ask why, okay? Because Jesus understands. Because he did the same, right? Did he feel forsaken? He wasn't an actor in a play, right? This is how he felt to the core of his being. However, what did he do with those feelings? How did he, how did he manage to stay up there, right? Because he, uh, he could actually come down, right? That's the difference between Jesus and I. Jesus said, you know, Jesus and... And you and I, people sometimes compare and say, well, it was easier for Jesus because he was the son of God. No, it was actually harder for Jesus because he was the son of God. Do you realize that? Because you nail me to the cross and I'm not going anywhere, right? But if they say, Jesus, come down, he can go and come down. Desire of Ages tells us that with one flash of his divinity, he could lay his cruel tormentors in the dust. Isn't that amazing? It'd be like allowing someone you, to beat you up when you know you could take them with one hand. You know what I mean? That's what Jesus did. He had the power to come down from the cross, but he didn't. That's what made his life even harder than yours and mine. Not easier, even harder. Jesus, suffering and dying, heard every word as the priest declared. He saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Christ, what? could have come down from the cross. But it is because he would not save himself that the sinner has hope of pardon and favor with God. That unselfish love coming back again, right? Now watch this. What was the motive that kept him there? Watch this. Don't miss it. Three times he has uttered that prayer. Three times his humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. 
This is an important point. Did Jesus want to go to the cross? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take it away! And I can tell you, I have heard Adventist theologians say, if you're on a diet and you really want the triple-decker hot fudge whipped cream sundae, and you don't eat it, oh, that's just works. You just might as well eat it. Don't eat it! Okay? Even if you feel like you want to do it, did Jesus do what he felt? No, remember, he says, take it away. I, I, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be separated forever from you, my father. He didn't feel like it. But praise God, he chose against his feelings. Did, I mean, don't you praise God? I mean, we wouldn't have a chance if Jesus obeyed his feelings. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now, watch this, this is the motive. Now the history of who? The human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. Do you see what kept him on the cross? It was you and me. And that's the thing. Jesus had the motive by focusing on others, focusing on the point of his sacrifice, focusing on the good that would come out of it. He left his feelings that were focused on himself, that he didn't want to be separated from the Father. He didn't want to be lost forever. He didn't want to be out of heaven forever, separated eternally. But he took his feelings off himself, and what did he put them on? You and me. And his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. And he will not turn from his mission. He will become the propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, Thy will be done. So that was his motive. Now how did he take that motive and turn it into victory? I'll show you. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken, right, of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, what did he rely on? The evidence of his father's, what? Acceptance when? Heretofore given him. He looked back, right, to his baptism when God the Father said from heaven, what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He didn't have any evidence on the cross, so what did he have to do? He had to look back to the evidence he had before. And that is what we can do too. We may be going through the worst possible situation, but aren't there some good situations before? Right? Same thing with your patients. You can have them look back, right, to the evidence they have for and fix their faith there, not on the present, not on themselves. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore 
given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, not by sight, by faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. But what about John? So we'll come back. I had intubated this guy, put in a central line, or actually put in a central line, intubated him, sent him up, and I expected by this time they had drained his lung and he would be doing better. I went up to the ICU, and John was dead. And I was just like, dude, he's dead. And I just expected the parents to be so angry with me. Like, we're going to sue you, you know, whatever. I, I, I expect them to be so livid. But did you know they weren't? And I learned a lesson from John that I will never forget as long as life shall live. Because this is actually the letter that his parents sent to me. Dear Dr. Riesenberger, we wish to thank you for the special care you gave to John and us. We know that you are an answer to our prayer and need Everyone we came into contact with at your hospital was kind and helpful. Thank you. I'm sending you John's memorial service program. Perhaps you'd like to get better acquainted with our dear son. Thank you again. And God bless. And I was just like, but I don't get it. And I was just talking to the parents. I don't understand. Why aren't you upset? And they said, yes, we're very sad. You know, and this is as their son is dead lying next to them in the ICU gurney. They said, yes, we're very sad, but don't you understand what you gave to our son? I said, tell me. They said, you gave him a window of time. You see, after you intubated our son, they took out the tube. He was able to breathe on his own for a little while. While they were doing the procedure and while they were draining stuff or trying to figure out what it was, he was able to call his grandparents, call his sister, call his girlfriend, and make his peace with God Amen. during that time. And right about that time, they realized that this was not fluid, but his whole mediastinum was solid tumor. And it was crushing the great vessels of his heart. And that there was no hope for our son. Within several minutes, actually hours, after they made that realization, our son died but he died a free man. Amen. And for that, we are always grateful to you. And I'm just like, wow. And it didn't sink in until I went to the book of Daniel and discovered the three most powerful words in the Bible. Daniel chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? Head of gold, right? Chest of... Silver, right? Waste of bronze and thighs of iron, right? And the head of gold represented Babylon and then Medo-Persia, etc., etc. Now, very interestingly enough, after he has this dream, right, he builds something. He builds an image in the same likeness as the one in the dream with one minor change. The entire image is made of solid gold to represent that Babylon will rule 
forever. And his law says, the music plays, you fall down and worship. You don't, you're toast, right? Very simple. And as the crowds bow down in adoration, there are three figures bolt upright. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know where Daniel was at this time. Maybe he was like on a UN sort of journey for Babylon or whatever. I don't know where he was, but he probably would have done the same thing. Now, it's very interesting. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods? Now, how long had they been in the service of the king? Years, right? After three years, they were ten times smarter. And it's like, dude, king, you know we don't serve your gods. I mean, you've known from like day one or day zero that we don't serve your gods. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know this. He was mocking them. He said, don't you serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at what time you hear the music, I'm going to give you another chance. Fall down and worship the image which I have made. But if you worship now, and Ellen White tells us that as he spoke this, something happened. You shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning and fiery furnace. And she says that he raised his hand in defiance to heaven and said, who is that God who will deliver you out of my hand? Now, what's their answer? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so, if that's your decision, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Here's the three words. But if not, but if not, let it be known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You see, it's very easy to worship God when things go well. It's very easy to have faith and confidence when all your patients do well. But when they die, where is God? Where is your faith? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood the three most powerful words in the Bible are not God is love and Jesus, whatever, you know. It's but if not. If God saves us, he is God. But if we roast he is still God, and we will still serve him. That is power. And that shows that your faith is real. And that will show your patience that your faith is real. When God is still God, when everything doesn't make sense, when everything falls apart, where is your faith? Where is your hope? Is God still love when your patient dies after all you did for them? And I can tell you, I learned that truth from John that day in the emergency department. That sometimes life isn't about good outcomes. Sometimes life is about a heart change. Sometimes you ask for life, but God allows death. Because sometimes that is the best outcome. Because John died a free man. He made his peace with God in the few moments by God's grace I was able to give him. And that's all he needed. 
And sometimes in our lives, we're going to face disappointments. We're going to face patients that don't make it. We're going to get a lot of bad outcomes. But I can tell you with my whole heart, I will never forget the lesson from that young teenage boy. That sometimes the things that seem the worst are really the best. You know, I had a young woman that I had been dating for over two years. And I loved with all my heart. And she loved me with all her heart. No, wait a minute. We weren't dependent on each other. No, wait. What was it? That was the last lecture. So we loved each other very much. Probably selfish love. But even so, I realized at the about two-year mark of our relationship that there was something there that the Bible and spirit of prophecy made very clear that I had to end the relationship. And let me tell you, this was the hardest decision I've ever made in my entire life to walk away from the woman I loved. And I remember, this was a year later, I had a friend of mine actually down in Loma Linda. They had taken me out to dinner, and they're like, Tim, would you ever love a woman more than you loved your girlfriend? And I said, I don't feel it, but by faith, I say yes. Because God never will take away something good without giving you something better in return. And I may have to wait until heaven for that something better. I may not ever have someone in this life, but God, I believe, will give me something even better than that relationship. And I can have faith that God knows what he's doing in the good times, but he's still God in the bad times. And I can tell you, when that point is reached in your faith, you will be in Christ so solidly that it will affect everyone around you. It will affect your patients because the proof to them that God is real is not that you're a Christian when things go well. The proof to them is when your life is swept away and you, like Job, can say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord and mean it. That is more powerful than every evidence. Did you know that the greatest evangelistic tool in the Middle Ages was the martyr's pile? Did you know that? When these guys were roasting alive on these piles of wood and would be singing hymns to God, dozens of people in the audience would give themselves to Christ right there because they knew it was real. Because these young men, young women were dying for their faith. They knew that God was God, even though they had to pay the ultimate price for their faith. And I pray that you would not only bring that faith to your patients, but also embrace that for yourself. That when times are tough, that you would realize that that moment is the moment of greatest faith for you. That you can prove to all the onlooking world that God is God in your life. But if not, you serve him anyway. This is actually a poem that I'll close with. This was written by a 15-year-old girl who went through a very devastating experience and had heard this presentation. This is the poem that she wrote as a result. And I'll close with this. And I'll ask you to just close your eyes and just meditate upon this for yourself for your patience, for your life. It's called, But If Not. 
I'm trusting, Lord, in you. Whatever is your will to do, send grief or pain or suffering. Just send me a song to sing. I know your power to deliver in love. You rule all the universe above. I know all things will work for good, and yet, but if not, by thy grace I will serve thee, by thy love I will serve thee. I cannot look to tomorrow, only today. All things will work for good in heaven someday. My belief cannot be based on my trials. Your coming in just a little while. Though the night may seem cold, you know the way I take. I will come forth as gold. Until then, help my faith not to waver in light of eternity forever. Help my belief to stay strong, even yet, by thy grace may I say, but if not. Let's kneel for prayer. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to thank you for the great honor I had of being the last one to care for John before he closed this life. And Lord, thank you that the words that he taught me, his legacy will always live on in my heart and through all of the hearts of the people I touch as a physician, as a friend, as a brother, as a boyfriend, Lord, as a preacher. And Father, I pray that his death would not be in vain for any of us, just as Christ's death would not be in vain, but that we would learn the lesson of the three powerful words in the Bible, that you are God no matter what. May we be able to say that we love you in the good times and say that we love you, but if not, Lord, I pray that Whatever my fellow colleagues are going through right now, may they know that you are in control of their life and you are in control of this whole world and universe. And you ultimately will bring about what is best for their life. No matter how it looks to us, Lord, give us strength, give us courage, give us inspiration. When things happen well, like in the life of Angela, let us rejoice but when our patients die, like John, let us still rejoice because they can die in hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.